0: The sermon for today is um, on um, becoming the Father's house. So um, I'm going to be preaching a series. Um, I've, I've done one sermon in the series already, but I've, I've got a few more to come. And just, The series is called The Church in Transition, um, because what we believe God has spoken to us and many other leaders within the church is that the, the um, church um, is in a massive tri- time of transition, um, not just in Australia, not just in the West, but even, even globally. And in that, that sermon, I um, made a couple of points. The first point that I made is that, um, I said, that, um, church is in transition, transition, so the way that we understand church and the way that we do church is most definitely going to change. I pointed out the transitions are not new, so God has been leading His church through transitions all the way from the very start. If you go and have a look at the book of Acts, one of the major transitions that the church had to go through was the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's people, and that took them a lot of years to figure out, okay, what is that going to look like? At the very start, when the Gentiles became of God's people, they said, okay, you can be a part of us, but hey, we're going to give you a low bar of Jewish law that you've got to keep, um, like not eating um, food with blood in it and, or eating meat from a strangled animal or um, things like that, and saying you've got to at least keep these things if you're going to be a part of God's people. But then when you look at the trajectory of Scripture, we move forward, and then Paul ends up saying very clearly to the church, like, hey, none of these Jewish observances are necessary. You are in by grace through faith. But that was a hard transition for them to go through. And it took them many, many years to wake up to what God was doing. So that's one really early on in the life of the church and the new covenant. But then something more recently would be something like the charismatic renewals that have happened within the 1900s. Where prior to that, the practice of the gifts of the Spirit weren't that prominent within the life of the church. They weren't that emphasized within, within the life of the church. Um, but you see these outpourings of the Spirit that took place led the church through these really momentous transitions where today more than a quarter of the church globally would call themselves Pentecostals or charismatic. That's a pretty massive shift to have taken place just in, within the last hundred years. And so transitions are not new. Transitions bring something that is new, but they themselves are not new. Um, Also, we see that transitions are difficult, because like I pointed out last week, um, there's a passing era, and there's a coming era, and then right smack bang there in the middle is the time of transition. And in the the passing era, you've got certain ways of doing things, you've got certain values, you've you've got certain modes of operation, and in the coming era, you've got different ways of doing things. You've got a different mode of operation, you've got a different set of values. And then in the middle, you've got this really awkward and challenging and difficult time of transition. Um, where you've got a little bit of the old, a little bit of the new. They're mixing together, and people can feel unstable in that mix. And that's what makes them so difficult and and unsettling. And then the last point is that um, transitions are exciting. They are really, really exciting. Because if Israel never transitioned out of Egypt, they would have never transitioned into a promised land. And I believe that God is continually at work within His church, beautifying His people, building up His church, making us into the people that He wants us to be representing Him within the earth. And so when God leads His church to, through transitions, when it's, when it's Him doing it, it's always good. It's always exciting. There might be difficulty involved, but He's doing something really beautiful. And that is, that is worth rejoicing over. So um, like I said last time, I would ask that you take these things that I'm saying in this series of The Church in Transition, and you go and talk to the Lord about it. You, you hear for yourself if what I'm saying is what the Spirit is saying to the church. I recognize that, that, the, that the nature of what I'm preaching um, over this series it has a prophetic edge to it because we're claiming that God's leading us into something that we're hearing the Spirit of, of God saying a particular thing. And um, I want you to not just believe me and just take my word for it. I want you to go and talk to God about it. For yourself and see if these things are true. So, um, so today the topic in the the church of um, in the um, in the series of the church in transition is on becoming the father's house. And for that, I'd like for us to read John chapter two, verse thirteen to verse seventeen. So, John chapter two, verse thirteen to verse seventeen. So, we'll have the scripture up on the screen, reading from the Christian Standard Bible. But it's always so good if you bring your Bibles and open up um, to there for yourself. Just help you to engage so much more in the Word. So, John chapter two verse thirteen to verse seventeen, the Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove out um, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the temple, of, um, the, the temple was God's unique dwelling place on the earth. Um, and God knows that um, where his presence is, is, is hosted well, there is life. Um, and so God really cares that his temple, his, his dwelling place, is taken care of so that he can be hosted well and so that there can be life for um, God's people, for, for the people that are worshiping, um, particularly for Israel, that if his presence was hosted well, they would have thrived and they would have been really blessed. And so yeah, God is totally zealous. Jesus is totally zealous for his Father's house. And Jesus gives us this glimpse here of just how zealous um, he really is for the, for the Father's house. So what was he taking issue with? He was taking issue with the fact that the Father's house was not operating as the Father's house. It, it felt and looked and operated like a marketplace. It was starting to operate like a marketplace. So they had these animals that were being sold. Then the animals were there um, as a part of the sacrificial offering system. So when people would come into the temple, they'd, have to, they'd um, sacrifice their animals and give an offering to the Lord. And they decided, hey, to make it way easier so that those traveling from from out of Jerusalem... Um, if they want to bring an animal to come and offer it up to the Lord, they can just leave their animals at home and then come to the temple and buy themselves an, an, um, an, an animal here to um, offer up. So, practically, it was a, was a uh, pretty good idea, but the issue was that they were setting up their shops within the temple outer courts. Um, there was also the issue of exchanging money. So as a part of coming to worship in the temple, you'd have to pay a temple tax, and you'd have to pay that temple tax with a specific currency. And so people would come from far and wide with their own currencies. They'd come to the temple, they'd exchange it into the currency to pay the tax, and then of course they would charge some interest on top of that and make some money out of it as well. And... Um, The last major issue was the fact that all of this was taking place within the outer court. All this business activities and this marketplace that they had set up was happening in the outer court. And that was the the court that had been dedicated for the Gentiles to come and worship and to come and pray and to come and, and enjoy the presence of God. And so the Jewish people had their own space that they could go into beyond the outer court, but the Gentiles were limited to the outer court where there's all this busyness now, there's all this chaos now, there's this marketplace, and so they weren't able to pray and to worship as they would have wanted to. That's why Jesus in the other gospel accounts quotes Isaiah and says that, it has been said that my father's house will be a a house of prayer for the nations. The nations were supposed to be able to come in and pray and enjoy God, but now the outer court's being set up like a marketplace. So they're actually excluding the Gentiles from being able to meaningfully come in and meet with God. So Jesus is upset because his Father's house doesn't look and feel like the Father's house. People are being excluded. The worship is being hindered. People aren't able to enjoy the presence of God like they are supposed to. Now, just to be very clear that Jesus is still very zealous about his father's house. Amen? Oh, We're going to have to do better than that. Amen? Come on. Jesus is still very zealous about the father's house. And it doesn't have to do with the temple in Jerusalem that got destroyed in AD 70. It doesn't have to do with our church buildings here in the 21st century, as nice as our church buildings are. This has to do with the people of God. This has to do with us, who He has said, we, the people of God, we are now His dwelling place. We are now His holy temple. We are now the Father's house. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse uh, 21 to verse 22, it says that, if you could put that up for us, um, Ron, in Him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in Him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit, so in this part of Ephesians, Paul is saying that, that, that uh, what is so amazing is that God is bringing all these believers together from all the different parts of the world, um, from, um, from um, outside of the, just the people of Israel. He's bringing in all these Gentiles, and he's constructing this holy dwelling. He's constructing this temple in which his presence can be made manifest, in which his life can uh, fill and flood the whole earth and end up transforming everything. And Jesus is so zealous to keep this going. He's moving it forward from age from to age to age. He's moving this project forward in constructing this holy house that will host the Father's presence. Now, the question I want to ask you, just as before I jump into some of the extra points that I want to make this morning, is do you think that the church today looks and feels like the Father's house? Do you think the church today looks and feels like the father's house. In the way that we do ministry does it look and feel like the father's house. For those in our midst who are struggling with sin does it look and feel like the father's house? For those who are discouraged and broken does it look and feel like the father's house. When the people of the world encounter us does it look and feel like the father's house? For those who we disagree with For our enemies, for those in politics, does the church look and feel like the Father's house? Because I think the Father's house needs to have a very distinct culture to it. The Father's house needs to have a fragrance to it that when people encounter us as the people of God, they can smell the Father on us. They can taste his goodness. They can receive of his love and his grace. They can walk away from an encounter with us knowing that there is something supernatural, something incredible, something that is different here. That's what should, it should be like for us as the people of God, as the Father's house. Now, growing up, I can, I can remember, even when I was a small child, even at the age of seven, that I would go over to different friends' homes, and um, the atmosphere would be totally different from one house to the next. I can remember this one friend who his dad was pretty much grumpy all the time. And, um, and children just seemed like the biggest burden to him. If we were going to play around the house, we had to do so very quietly, off in our own space, because he didn't want to be interrupted by us. He didn't want to be bothered by us. And then I had this another friend I still remember it so clearly. His dad was the complete opposite of that. You'd go over to that friend's house, and his dad would want to be playing with the kids. I have this memory of us, of us playing with this, with this dad, playing on the, um, what was it called? The, um, the Sega? Is that right? Is that a game? Yeah. Sega, Sega. Yeah, I can remember us playing Sonic with, with his dad on the Sega. I can remember him showing off his muscles to us and us checking out his muscles. Him just hanging out with us as the kids... He he wanted to be with the kids. He celebrated the kids. He enjoyed the kids. He delighted in the kids. Two totally different atmospheres in these two homes. And I think the church of God should feel like that second house. Should be this atmosphere that when people encounter us, they feel the Father. They see the Father. They hear the Father. So I don't want to, um, you know... Um, what's the word? I don't want to just, you know, complain about the church here today. That's not what I'm going at at all because the church is an amazing place. Absolutely amazing. The things that God is doing through His church in the earth are worth celebrating. In so many ways, we are functioning as, as salt and light in the earth. Just Friday morning at prayer meeting, I left prayer meeting just so encouraged because we're praying for for the, um, the shoebox appeal with the Kingdom Kids. We're praying for the priceless house fundraising that's going on. We're praying for Keith and his business um, 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 group that he's trying to start. We're praying for family members that are going to be um, shared the gospel with over this Christmas time. We're praying for homeless. We're praying for all these people, and it's just so amazing to hear the things that God's people are doing. Really, it is so amazing. I have the privilege of having a front row seat as a pastor to see the incredible things that God is doing through His church. So I I don't want to stand up here and just complain about the church. The church is doing amazing things in the earth. But I do want to say that I think the work's not done, right? There's still more for God to do, and He's beautifying His bride so that one day we can stand before Him, blameless, without spot and without wrinkle then he's going to have to lead us through these things and beautify us even more. And so there is still much work to be done. So what is Jesus up to as he is, um, as he is leading us or building the Father's house here on the earth? I want to highlight six points here for you today. I'm going to try to not get too bogged down. Um, it's, just, it's likely that I will because I'm very excited about these points. Um, but yeah, I've got, I've got six points here for you. So twice as much as you're allowed to in a typical Baptist sermon. So um, I'm really going for it today. So the first point I want to make is our service, so our doing, will flow from our sonship. What is Jesus up to? He is seeing to it that within his church, our service will flow from our sonship. Our doing is going to flow from our, our being. Now, when I say sonship, I'm not excluding you ladies I'm not saying this is just something that God's doing within the males. I'm just using the language of Scripture because Scripture uses this language of sonship because Jesus as the Son of God shows us what our relationship with God is supposed to look like, and then we are invited into that sonship. That's the language that Scripture uses. But of course, this is for the sons and for and for the daughters. This is for, I'm talking about sonship and I'm talking about uh, daughtership. We as the church have emphasized our service more than our sonship. We have emphasized our doing more than our being. For far too long, we have treated God as though what He primarily wants from us is what we can offer Him and how useful we can be to Him. For far too long, we have anchored our sense of worth and identity to the measure of our obedience, our sacrifice, our ministerial gifts, and our fruitfulness. For far too long, we have busied and exhausted ourselves. I can testify in the name of delighting his heart and walking in his favor. That has been the thing that we have primarily focused on. It's been the service, it's been the doing, instead of the sonship and the being. So let me be very clear with you today that this is not the heart of God, and I believe that God is changing this in his church at the moment. God doesn't primarily want servants. What God primarily wants is sons and daughters. God doesn't primarily wants something from you. God primarily wants something for you. This is a very important distinction. And that's something that he wants for you is that you would know and live in the revelation that you are loved as a son and daughter of God. The thing that delights his heart more than anything else is you living as a son and daughter of God. This is why Paul in Ephesians 3 in Ephesians 1, he'll, 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 he'll say to the church, I pray for you that you might be filled with the knowledge and the wisdom of God and that you may come to comprehend what is the riches of his inheritance in the saints. What is he saying? I pray that you would know just how much you mean to God. That you are his inheritance, that he sees you as his great riches. And you need to be filled with that knowledge. You need to be filled with that wisdom. And then you move on to Ephesians 3. And again, he launches off into this prayer. He says, I want you to know how great is the heights and the depths and the lengths and the breadth of his love for you in Christ Jesus. And that you would be grounded in his love. That you would know him as this God that is wanting to do above and beyond all that you could ever hope for or imagine. Paul in Ephesians will tell him to go do plenty of things. Yes, he will. He'll tell them to love one another. He'll tell them to pursue truth. He'll tell them to walk humbly. He'll tell them how to do marriage well. But this burning prayer within his heart, his priority is that you would know that you are his sons, that you are his daughters, that you are his inheritance. The primary thing for God is your sonship and your being. It's not what he can get out of you. we simply ask the question, what would a good father be like, then this truth should be really clear to us. This truth should have shaped our doctrine a long time ago, but unfortunately, the answer to that question hasn't shaped our theology and our ministry enough yet. What does a good father primarily want for his kids? Does a good father primarily want kids for what he can get out of them? No. No. Does a good father primarily want kids for the many ways that they can serve him? Does a good father primarily delight in his kids because of how useful they are to him? Does a good father set out to have children so that he can get some kids to, to mow his lawn and to wash his car and to go and work and earn some money and to contribute it to the house? No, that is not why a good father sets out to have kids. A good father primarily loves his kids simply because they are his kids. A good father delights in his children as his children, irrespective of how well they obey and observe, or, um, and, and, sorry, and serve. A good father is primarily focused on blessing and providing and protecting and flourishing his children for their sake and not for his own sake. A good father teaches his children obedience and servant-heartedness, but not for what he can get out of them, but so that they might flourish as good and beautiful people. A good father is primarily focused on securing his children in the understanding of his unconditional love for them and never makes his love and delight conditioned upon their performance. One of the stories in Scripture that portrays this so wonderfully is the story of the older brother of the, of the prodigal son. In the think of my burnout, God was dealing with me on this point like, like crazy. Because even though I knew that I was his son, there was something in me that placed more weight on being a servant than being a son. I had this this, this pressure inside of me this whole time that that I need to be better for him and I need to do more for him and I need to achieve more for him and I need to have more fruit for him. I need to know that I'm walking in his favor. I need to know that he's delighting in me. There was this constant pressure, pressure that I'm not enough. I need to be better for him. And then God took me to the story of the older brother and the prodigal son and just floored me because I was acting like that son. So for those of you that don't know the story, is that, there's a story of the prodigal son who goes off, makes a mess of his life. The father waits for him to come home. And in the moment the son returns, the father runs over to him, embraces him. My son that was lost is finally home. My son that was dead to me is alive. And he throws this crazy big party in celebration that his son has just come home. And it's this picture of God the father yearning for his lost sons and daughters to come back home. Glorious. But then there's the older brother in the story who has a bee in his bonnet, who's upset, who's feeling bitter, who's feeling frustrated. And he goes to his dad and he says to him, Dad, I have been slaving in your fields all this time. You know, my brother, he's gone off and made a mess of the inheritance, made a mess of his life. And he comes back home and you throw this massive party for him. But for me, I've been faithful in your house. Where's my party? Where's my celebration? Where's my favor? And I can imagine the father looking at him really confused because it seems like it in what he says. He says, what do you mean? I am always with you and everything I have is yours. That son was living as though he was a slave in his own father's house who needed to earn those things from his father. And the father says to him, hang on a sec. You're my son. I'm already with you. Everything I have is already yours. Yes, work in the fields, but not from the place of trying to earn my presence and earn my blessings. No, you already have my presence and my blessings and then just go work in the field. Work from this place of knowing your identity, knowing how secure you are in my love. Father says, I am always with you and everything I have is yours. So the primary desire in the heart of God for us is that we would come to know and live in the wonder and beauty of what it means to be unconditionally loved as his sons and daughters. This is why Jesus came to earth as the son of God. We needed a picture of how God wants us to live in relationship with him. He didn't come as the servant of God, even though he served his father very faithfully. He came to us as the son of God. This is why at both the baptism of Jesus and the transfiguration of Jesus, the father declares loudly to all those that are present, behold, this is my son with whom I am delighted, my son with whom I'm well pleased, so that we would know that this is how the father feels towards his sons and his daughters. This is why Jesus prays in John 17, verse 23, that we would know that God loves us in the exact same way that he loves the Son, Jesus. Still to this day, one of the craziest prayers I think ever prayed, because it just sounds so outlandish that we could be as loved, loved as much by the first person of the Trinity, as much as he loves the second person. This is why In Romans 8, we're told that the creation is longing in the groaning and the pains of childbirth for the revelation of the sons of God. It's not groaning and longing for the revelation of the servants of God, it's for us to enter into our identity as the sons and daughters of God. And as we enter into that, the the liberation of the creation will follow. This bondage to decay will be undone. God wants us to live in that reality. And that as his love heals us and frees us and transforms us, we would be able to then pass that revelation on to others. And bit by bit, we will restore the earth. We cannot give this love unless we have first received it. For far too long, we as God's church have been insecure in our relationship with God, and we felt that we need to prove ourselves to Him. For too long, we've been unable to slow down and live a balanced life at a balanced pace and enjoy His blessings and His love, because we're scared that we're not going to meet the quota. For too long, we've been unable to appreciate and enjoy seasons that aren't as busy or as fruitful as others, because we're scared that He might disapprove of the season, For too long, we've been impatient with people who are not coming to Jesus, who are not being discipled in the way that we want them to because we ourselves have felt that God is impatient with us. And I could mention many more things. But I believe that God is healing His church, that God is building the Father's house, and that we will have an even greater revelation of our sonship and it'll transform the way that we do church. That's point one, people. I told you that I, I don't know how I'm going to do this. <laughs> you might have to call for like a, a, uh, a snacks break halfway through or something like that. <laughs> Second point I want to make is that our leaders will lead like fathers. As this revelation of, of God being a father and we being his sons and daughters takes greater hold within the church, it's going to transform the way that leadership is done in the church. There will be mass repentance for the control and the manipulation that has existed within the church that is so prevalent today. You know, God has given his leaders this incredible privilege of of being able to demonstrate the Father to those within the church. You know, Paul would say to the church that, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And Christ, what did he come to do? He came to reveal the Father. We see this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4. I think I gave you 14. It's supposed to be chapter 4. Sorry about that. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse uh, 14 to verse 17. All good? Great. So he says, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Verse 15, or oh, verse five, oh, 15, sorry, yeah. For you may have countless instructors in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. This is why I've sent Timothy to you. He is my dearly loved and faithful child in the Lord. He will remind you about my ways in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. So Paul says, you've got many instructors in the church, but you have few people that actually relate to you like fathers. And then he goes on and talks about Timothy, who he calls his dearly loved child in in the Lord. He calls him his son. Because Paul was putting on display the heart of the father in the way that he led the church. And I think that God is in many ways going to bring the church forward in these things. So the way that we do leadership will feel so much more like being fathered. Often it's the case that church leaders feel more like CEOs you know, to be controlled by and manipulated by. Often they feel so much more like celebrities, you know, that are untouchable. Celebrities that to be praised and to be followed but at a distance because they're, they're a little bit better than you. can often feel like judges to be feared and obeyed. You know, you've got to say the right things, do the right things, act the right way, otherwise you're going to cop it. So there are some real negatives in the church today, but there are also positives that just fall short of the full picture. You know, we have leaders that are apostolic leaders that are very inspiring, and you've got prophetic leaders that are very encouraging, and teachers that are great at instructing, and pastors that are awesome at caring, and evangelists that are fantastic at equipping. You've got these things operating in the church, but are there fathers? How many of them are fulfilling these roles as fathers, with the heart of a father, I know that for me, from talking from personal experience, you know, I've been really involved in ministry within the church since my early teen years. And I've had many, many people pour into my life, and many, many people invest into me, and many, many people encourage me. There's been a lot of that in my journey. But if I'm honest with you, I've had very few people love me and support me with the unconditional love and support of a father. Very, very few. I've been loved as long as I agreed with them and believed the right things. I've been loved as long as I served and sacrificed in their ministry. The moment I left their ministry, it was done for. I've been loved as long as that leader could benefit from me in some way. I've been loved as a ministry project so that they could feel good about themselves, that they are doing ministry. But there have been few that have truly loved me with the Love this phrase, Lauren's dad taught me this phrase, the disinterested benevolence. The disinterested part is that they're not in it for what they can get out of it. The benevolence is that they're just there to bless and do good. And that is the heart of the Father. And I know that, sure, most of you in this room can say the same thing about your experience in church. It's really, really sad that that has been the experience for so many people in the church. But I believe that God is transforming this in his church at the moment. In the coming decades, we're going to see God bring about massive transformation in this area. I really, really do believe it. Leaders will no longer lead asking the questions, what can I get out of these people? They will ask the question, how can I lay down my life for these people so that they might flourish into the fullness of who they were created to be? Point number three that I think Jesus is up to is that the church will be a place of belonging. Are you guys tracking with me all right? Are you following me? Does it sound good? Even if I'm wrong, if this is not happening, this is worth pursuing, right? <laughs> the church will be a place of Belonging. One thing about the house of the Father is that everyone there belongs. A house of a good father, every kid knows they belong. You don't feel like you're walking on eggshells, you don't feel like you're not good enough, you don't feel like you're being judged and assessed the whole time. You know, when Jesus displayed the heart of the Father to the world, He gathered the tax collectors and the sinners, He gathered the prostitutes. When they were around him, they could feel the father's heart. They could feel that even though they were still in their sin, they belonged. They mattered. Of course, he was going to lead them out of it, but leading them out of their sin wasn't the condition for them belonging. It was so much so that when Levi, the tax collector, gets saved, he was so convinced that he belonged that he then goes and, conv- goes and invites his sinful tax collector buddies and throws a massive party where Jesus was the main guest. I don't know if you've ever seen that happen before. Where a sinner gets saved, right, and they just feel like they belong so much, they go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to invite all my sinful buddies to come and hang out with this church guy because being around him feels so good. No, normally what happens is that guy gets saved and then he quietly disappears off into the night and leaves his sinful buddies behind and then joins the church and becomes religious. That's what normally happens. But Jesus shows us the heart of the fathers, bringing people in to make them belong. Jesus said that God's kingdom is like a heavenly party. And he said that the attendees are going to come from the highways and the byways. The people that normally don't belong in society, the ones that don't get invited to the parties, they are the ones that are going to come to this party because they'll feel like they belong. When Jesus caught the woman, the woman in adultery, well, he didn't catch her, the Pharisee her, and they brought her before Jesus. And according to the law, they said that she had to be stoned. They wanted to see what was Jesus going to do with this adulterous woman, this sinful woman. And Jesus says that you who is without sin, you throw the first stone. Bit by bit, they all cower away. And the only person who is sinful at that moment doesn't pick up a stone. And he says to that woman, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. She belonged. When Jesus was being murdered on the cross by sinful men, he lifted up a prayer to his father and said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they are doing. This is the heart of the father. It's limitless compassion, boundless forgiveness, open arms that embraces the broken, the hurting, the sinful. Of course he doesn't want to leave them in their sin. But he first embraces, and he first says that you are valuable, that you matter, that I see you, that you are known. And then as they experience that love, it woos them and compels them into holiness. It woos them and compels them into the good life. And for far too long, this is not what the world has experienced from the church. For far too long, the church has been experienced as being far more like the Pharisees than like Jesus. For far too long, the church has felt like a place of judgment and not a place of unconditional love and belonging. The church has felt like a club that you can be a part of as long as you say the right things and do the right things. It has not felt like the Father's house. And I believe that God is transforming this in His church as well, that, this, that the church will become a place of undeniable belonging. For the hurting, for the broken, from those that come from the highways and the byways. Point number four, our brothers and sisters will be valued more than the success of our ministries and the correctness of our beliefs. For far too long, we have been willing to do ministry at the expense of people. We've been willing to do ministry at the expense of people. You know, I recently had the, the, um, the tires of my car replaced. It's always so expensive, far out. But I did get a pretty good, de- pretty good deal just here in, um, in Underwood. Um, went to a second-hand tire shop and asked them for new tires. And for some reason, second-hand tire shops sell new tires, but much cheaper than getting new tires from the new tire shop. I don't know how that works. Um, but, you know, you use your tires... Until they don't serve you anymore, and then you get new ones. And people have been treated just like that in the church. We've got a vision that needs to be accomplished, and we need manpower to make it happen. And so, come and serve, come and volunteer, come and give of your resources, come and give of your time. Because this vision has to be accomplished, it has to be fulfilled. And people, out of the goodness of their hearts, come, and they do these things, and they're given these ways. But then they can't keep it up, because, I don't know, they're human. And then they break, or they waver and wander into some sin that they shouldn't have wavered into. They get disheartened. Something bad happens in their lives. I don't know, something happens. And then all of a sudden, they can't output like they did before. And then they're done away with and replaced by someone else because the church has to keep growing and the vision has to keep moving forward. We've been doing ministry at the expense of people. We've treated them like replacements. And again, I think it comes down to people's idea of what God is like. For a long time, I believed that the main thing for God was the fame of his own name. For a long time, I believed that the main thing for God was his own glorification. And he was committed to doing that and seeing that take place no matter what. He's willing to do it at whoever's expense. Because the only good and right thing to do is to glorify himself. It's the, the highest good of all goods for God to glorify himself. And so if he was going to determine that a person should die because them dying would give him the most glory, then he would take their life from them. If he would determine that, you know, someone becoming a paraplegic would be the thing that would glorify him most, then he would see to that they became a paraplegic if he believed that someone getting some sort of sickness would be the thing that glorified him most, he would allow them to have that sickness. And all of this got totally shattered for me one day when I realized that that is not the main thing for God. When the Bible says that God cares about the fame of his name, it is saying that he cares about the revelation of his character. Jewish thought is your name represents who you are. And so when he says, I care that the nations would know my name, he's saying, I care that they would see I am the God of selfless love. It's the very opposite. Instead of him being this being at the center of the universe, sitting on his throne and saying, worship me, adore me, come and bow down before me, or else I send you to hell for all eternity. The vision of God is this being who humbles himself to the lowest place, Becomes a man just like us. Enters into our pain and suffering. And then goes and dies upon a cross. Being rejected, being abused, being mocked, being spat upon. He humbles himself to the lowest place. Dies as the suffering servant. And in John, he says that this is his moment of glorification. For God to glorify himself is for God to show us that he's not concerned about his glory in the way that fallen human beings are. The fame of his name is the fame that the whole earth knows. The God of the universe is selfless in love. But can you see that if you have a picture of God like the first depiction that I gave, where God is so committed to his vision that he's going to accomplish and it doesn't matter what it costs the earth and his creation and human beings, that we will imitate that in the way that we do ministry. We are going to say that there's this project that needs to be done. There's this is ministry that needs to be done. There's this is vision that needs to be filled. And we need to move forward to that. We need to build for it. We need to make it happen. And we'll do it at the expense of people. But I believe that God is changing this. And it means that as a result of that, ministry is going to have to move slower. We're going to have to start doing ministry with the mind-blowing patience of God. I don't know how he's still keeping up with this project after all these years. But he is so incredibly patient because he's the one that leaves the 99 to find the one. He's not leaving people behind. He's not willing to walk over people in order to see his thing accomplished. He's journeying with us with this incredible patience, and ministry is going to have to look the same. But like I said, for a long time also, we've been willing to break fellowship with someone just because they think differently to us on matters of doctrine. Think about the Apostle Paul when there was that issue going on about do we eat the food sacrificed to idols or not? And he says that we can eat the food sacrificed to idols. It's not a problem. But if you eating the food sacrificed to idols is going to destroy the faith of your brother, then don't eat the food sacrificed to idols. So you might have the right belief on this one. But that should not... That belief should not be at work at the expense of your brothers and sisters. I think that God is changing this in his church as well at the moment. If I have all knowledge and all wisdom, but I have not love, I am. I'm nothing. Love is the most preeminent thing. Truth matters. It matters incredibly. But love is preeminent. That's the fourth point. Fifth point is that what is Jesus up to? That, um, that living as a spiritual family will be valued more than meetings and services. Steve Stewart, who came and visited here a couple of weeks ago. Anyone enjoy Steve Stewart? Yeah? Three of you? Good. should have given him a smaller gift to say thank you. <laughs> he had this awesome line in one of the meetings where he said, people were made for family and not for meetings. I so agree with that. I pastor a church and I'm sick of Sunday meetings. It sounds very, very bad to say but I am. I'm tired of this machine. I'm tired of what we've created. We've we've got all these meetings that we have to keep doing and doing and week after week. I'm tired of preaching at you people. Surely you've heard this sermon before. Surely you've heard people say stuff like this before. Surely you've read it in the book yourselves. But we've created This machine that requires that we keep on having meetings ad nauseum. We just keep going with our meetings and our meetings and our meetings. And all along, we're missing the main thing. Why we started the meetings in the first place is because of family. The church started this thing not so that we could sit down once a week and hear a nice lecture. That's not why the church started this. Our meetings began as an expression of family. That's why food was central to the gatherings in the early church. Because when a family gets together, I know for sure when our family gets together, the main thing that's going on is we're eating. And we're hanging out with each other. We're getting to know each other. We're supporting each other. It's natural. It's organic. It's real. We were made for family and not for meetings. And I don't know what it's going to look like. I have suspicions. I don't know what it's going to look like, but the meetings can't keep being the main thing that we're doing. The services can't keep being the main thing that we're doing. We can't trade real family for this, as good as it is. People need to truly be known. People need to truly belong. People need to feel like you're really in their lives and you're really supporting them. People need to know that when they're having a weak day, people will be there to support them. When they're struggling financially, the church, the people, the people, not the organization, the people will be there to give and to sacrifice for them. Real family. Jesus said that the world would know that we are his disciples when we start experiencing that type of oneness, that type of family. I think this is another thing that is changing in the coming decades. And the last thing is we're at point six, people. Come on, and we're still under an hour. Come on. (laughs) Point number six is that um, we're going to have fun. Because God is hosting the greatest family party of all time. He is hosting one massive party. Jesus partied so hard that they accused him of being a drunkard and a glutton. picture that we have in Revelation is that the saints gathered at this incredible wedding banquet the marriage supper of the Lamb and it's one glorious party as said before the parables that Jesus told is parables of there is a party happening and people are being invited to come and to join in Again, this just hasn't been the picture of the church. We've been grumpy, and we've been accusatory, and we've been weighed down with all these burdens of feeling like we're not good enough, and we have to be more, and we have to do more, and not great party vibes. But the kingdom, this family that Jesus is growing on the earth, will feel like one incredible celebration. When we gather, we are so overwhelmed by his goodness and his love. It is transforming our lives so wonderfully. It is pouring into one another within this community. It's going to be so much fun. Hebrews chapter 12 I'm um, reading from verse, I gave you the wrong reference again, Ron. I am shocking at this. From, from verse 18, if you're able to quickly add in from verse 18 to verse 24, that would be great. Awesome. So follow along with me, please. It says, for you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, to gloom and a storm the blast of trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. Not great party vibes. He says, this is not what you've come to, right? The people of God, those poor guys did have to experience that. Around Mount Sinai, and it was terrifying for them, and they didn't want to draw near. He says, But instead, we, verse 22, instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. Blood of Abel speaks death. The blood of Jesus speaks life. And he says, you have not come to that terrifying mountain. You've come to Mount Zion, and this is a place of festive gathering. Jesus said that I have come, the spirit of the, the Lord God is upon me to preach good news to the poor, That the captives are going to be set free. That your mourning is going to be exchanged for rejoicing. That your ashes are going to be replaced with beauty. A festive gathering, the year of jubilee. This is what you've come to. So as this revelation of this beautiful father takes root within the church of God and brings about the transformation that it was always intended to do, This thing is going to be incredibly fun. And so this is what I'm anticipating that God is up to because His zeal for His house hasn't changed. Jesus' zeal for His Father's house hasn't changed. And this project is moving forward that His house will be known by all the nations as the Father's house. And they will flock in through the gates to come and taste His goodness for themselves. Amen? So the six points, if you can read them on the slide. What is Jesus up to? Our service will flow from our sonship. Our leaders will lead like fathers. The church will be a place of belonging. Our brothers and sisters will be valued more than the success of our ministries and programs. Living as a spiritual family will be valued more than meetings and services. We are going to have fun because God is hosting the greatest family party of all time. Let it be so, Lord. So I hope that you're excited. I hope that your heart is stirred with faith. Like I said before, even if I'm wrong, at least this is the ideal. At least this is how it should be. No, I don't think I'm wrong. I think God is doing this. But this is what it should be like. This is what the Holy Spirit is groaning for. This is what he wants to see his church be like. And I'm excited to figure out how he's going to do it and what that's going to look like, and I hope that you're on board. So music team, can you come and join us? Can um, you all please stand with me? Father, I don't really know what else to pray other than just let it be, Lord. We ask that you would let it be, God. We ask that your spirit would make this our reality, God. God, that as you beautify your church throughout the ages, God, that that this would be something that we get to see with our own eyes, Lord. This would be something we get to participate in and experience, we ask, Lord, that you would let it be. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Come, Lord. Do this in your church. And Father, we we know that there's so much that we need to be repenting of ourselves. God, we aren't standing before you here today pointing out the splinter in someone else's eye with a log in our own, Lord. We know what's in our own eyes we know God that we are broken we know that we have fallen short we know that we have not walked in your love as sons and daughters we have not reflected that incredible love to the world we know God and we're asking that you would change us don't leave us the same Lord As Paul pray, Lord, I pray you would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in Christ Jesus. We would know the riches of your inheritance in the saints. Let us know your love, Lord, that is higher and wider and deeper. It goes further than anything we've ever imagined, Lord. Let us know it, God, and change us, I pray. God, we want to live as your beautiful family here on the earth. So we just commit all this to you, Lord, and lead us forward in your plans, God. We're on board for whatever you want to do. We're excited by it, God, and we just give you all the glory and honor for how incredibly faithful you are to us. In Jesus' name, we pray.